Okay. Are you ready to get started? Mm-hmm. Okay. Welcome to the Gang Gray Podcast. We are an, an Anglophone seniors group, but we have a lot of Francophones who speak English that want to be part of us, and we're open to anybody that fits the age group. And when you're getting older, you don't have to go into isolation. And when you're getting older, when you go into an institution, you don't have to go back into the closet. We are here. Are you from Montreal? No. Where are you from? Let's start there. I was was (laughs) born in Orillia, Ontario, Stephen Leacock's place, Gordon Lightfoot. and I moved uh, when I was a kid. We moved to Kingston. So I grew up mostly in Kingston until I was in grade 10. We moved to Toronto. I lived in Scarborough, Scarberia. <laughs> and I went to the Scarborough campus of the University of Toronto, where I got my first two degrees. What were, what were they degrees in? Uh, an honors BA in history and politics Ooh. and a bachelor of education uh, from OISE. So I wanted to become a teacher. But when I graduated in 72, no, 72 with that degree, there was 20 million people looking for jobs and there were no jobs. So I was a supply teacher and my territory went Toronto all the way to Ajax. And so I had to borrow my mother's car to get to to get to work. And of course, as a supply teacher, you're, you're... Unless you're there for a time, and in some cases I was. I was teaching biology, which I never fucking took. Uh, oh, sorry. It's okay. Uh, um, it's our podcast. We can swear if we want to. And uh, <laughs> I, one class, I, I was girls phys ed, so I walked in and I took a basketball and threw it over my shoulder and went in the basket. I had no problems after that. Wow. <laughs> I could never duplicate that. If I tried, I never tried. <laughs> but it, it was, you have to come up with handles to to get people to take you seriously because as a oh, supply teacher they always ignore well I did too <laughs> um, and so then I uh, um, I met Walter my partner and I came out in uh, 74 when I was a kid it was a 10-year prison sentence to be gay um, and when Trudeau Sr. changed the law in Lester Pearson's government in 69, then we became legal, but it was, uh, let me back up a bit. When I was uh, a kid kid, I organized in my community a puppet show for the whole community. Put blankets on a clothesline to make a curtain and all kinds, of, and we had all kinds of neighbors okay. and so on. When you say whole community. I meant the neighborhood, like several streets. and Like how many people came to see your play? Oh, I didn't count, but it was between 50 and 100. Oh my goodness. Oh yeah. That's better than like most, you know, like <laughs> indie musicians, oh, <laughs> you know? It like, was wonderful. It's really hard to get people to come out to things. Well, yeah, out. and I thought it was so easy, so I said, I can do this. So I didn't, I just went on and did that. And Also, it helped that you were an adorable child, I'm sure. <laughs> well, I, I my was a, a middle child. My brother became a psychiatrist and my sister became a, uh, an insurance agent. And she was the, uh, when my brother was born, they used forceps to get him out and fucked my mother up. So she wasn't <sighs> supposed to have any more kids. She had me. And my sister was like uh, Shirley Temple. She was the spot in my mother's eyes and father's eyes and dressed up as Shirley Temple and uh, with the ringlets and so on. And she, oh, she, she could do no wrong. 
My father was a manager at Singer. Uh, he taught my mother how to sew and so on. Then he joined um, Prudential Life Insurance and became a major seller for that and made very good living. And State Farm lured him away because Prudential was just selling, at that point, just life insurance, and State Farm was selling other things. And my father, uh, well, indeed my mother, uh, never did much in school. My father, I think, went to grade six or so on. Um, in those days, it's your work out. He couldn't, he couldn't join the war because he had uh, medical reason. They wouldn't let him. Uh, but he, so the, he went, uh, joined, uh, uh, what was it, Taco? You were building uh, the war planes and so on. So he found a way to contribute. But he, he was, uh, other things that I picked up, he was a pastry chef. Uh, and he would create different things. And he would have fun with it. I'll make you an angel's tit. Uh, Wait, what's an angel's tit? Uh, cream de cacao with uh, some uh, whipped cream on top. Ooh. It's a little wee thing, but yeah, it, it, it would, would be. Oh, it's lovely. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it was lovely, but he would find these different. He would take a marshmallow, or roll it in chocolate, uh, and then roll it in nuts or, or coconut and so on, and make those for Christmas. Different things that would just open the fridge and be able to do something. So I picked up on on stuff but I would my mother did most of the cooking uh, but when she went to work uh, I was my sister was too young my brother was in school becoming a doctor so he had no time so uh, I would try to make the main meal when I uh, was a kid they still delivered milk and horses and we still had it and they delivered ice for the ice bucket because we didn't have a lucky it didn't oh my god oh yeah i go back. i didn't know i knew anyone who, oh, who yeah. had had that experience because i've known about it and i've been curious about it oh, and i yeah. felt like oh that would be neat it was neat. and i lived a block from the prison in kingston on a nice boulevard with trees and so on and and i had good neighbors and other neighbors up the street, one neighbor up the street used to make me toys, stuffed toys, I all kinds of them I love. I wasn't much of anything. Uh, I, I sort of knew I liked guys, but I didn't, I was too young to really pay much attention. I, I liked to uh, play games with guys and so on and uh, play doctor and uh, I, I, I found, I would was good at creating excuses to try to force things to, to happen. Uh, I didn't know why, but I just <laughs> did. I used to have fun with a, with a guy across the street named George. <laughs> we would go into a closet just to uh, hide from people. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, when you're a kid, it's, it's so much fun to hide in the closet. Well, I, I lived uh, in Kingston on the edge of... Uh, there wasn't any houses. There was a nice brook. I could, we could play in the forest, and I loved playing in the forest. And we go far as there was another prison, Collins Bay, because we, when my sister was born, we moved to the edge of the city because where we were living wasn't uh, wasn't big enough for uh, the three of us. And uh, I was always building things in the forest and so on, and and, and finding things and. Uh, ancient bones of dead horses and so on. All these different things that you could dig up in, in the fields and so on. It was fun. Or in the wintertime on Cataraqui Creek, we'd clean it off and, and skate, and uh, my brother would play hockey and so on. And so I, I, I was uh, city-country sort of combination. I like country. I always like country. I'm full country. <laughs> and when I moved to Toronto, uh, that was a big city. 
and I wasn't used to the big city. My, I went to uh, Neil McNeil High School run by the Holy Ghost Fathers who have since been brought up on charges. But my father dropped me off and, and sort of make your way home. And I didn't know, uh, I learned how to find a streetcar and make, I, I learned how to get home. Nobody told me how to get there. So that was a big lesson in uh, baptism by blood almost. Yeah, I think a lot of my, my own sort of independent streak is lar- largely just because I've found myself in situations where I had no other choice yeah, than to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, after Trudeau passed the law, I was still in high school, so I didn't do much. When I got to university, though, I uh, joined what uh, George Hislop was president. And George Hislop was the big guy who became the first uh, gay elected gay city councillor in Toronto. He set up all kinds of projects and go on. And I, he was president and I was treasurer. And we were CHAT, Community Homophile Association in Toronto. We couldn't use the word gay. It was illegal to use the word gay. It was illegal oh, it to was use illegal. the word you gay. You couldn't use it for an organization. So do you... So let's just think now, running an organization called Gay and Grey, does that feel like really cool and rebellious? Well, it doesn't rebellious, but it feels cool. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, we had to fight. I remember, because I did lots of radio shows, I remember, uh, why do you use the word gay? Aren't you happy or are you sad? Or I mean, nobody understood, and, and we had it when... Uh, Wait, what is the origin of gay? Do you know? I don't. I forget now, but... It, it, <laughs> There are different things you find in history, like an Oscar Wilde. In every play, there's a green carnation. Because in the 1890s, that's how you found out if you were gay or wanted to meet somebody, you wore a green carnation. And every play that Oscar has, there's a green carnation somewhere on the stage. Oh, I didn't know that. And yesterday I was just, uh, I saw that there was a documentary that was made called The Whistle. And it's about a whistle that uh, lesbians used to identify each other. It was a very particular whistle that you had to learn, and that was how you knew that someone was a lesbian. Yeah, there's all kinds of those things. So it grew out of that. And of course, I was annoyed that we couldn't use the word gay to organize or to, but when I moved to Montreal in 76, back up a piece, I got to, representing chat, I organized on the Don District Interagency Group, all the diff- agencies that were downtown Toronto, the Red Cross, churches, hospitals, and so on. Uh, we complained, the community people, that your hours were not useful when people are in crisis. So my project then was to get everybody to change their hours, and, and I was successful. And I said to myself, and I was representing a gay organization, one, I can be gay publicly and I can actually make a contribution and this is something that benefits everybody. Um, So that was, uh, to me, uh, a revelation and how easy it was able to get agencies, big multi-million dollar agencies, to respond to what the community organizations were demanding. And so when I moved to Montreal, I joined, uh, well, there was a Montreal Community Church, which was a uh, an attempt to get MCC because MCC was in Toronto and I was part of uh, MCC Toronto under Reverend Wolf. It was uh, then. Could you explain what MCC is? Metropolitan Community Church. It was a set up as a, a Christian a denomination where gays and non-gays could be in the same church. Uh, and I was uh, I was always a very spiritual person, and that gets more when I get to Montreal. But uh, when I moved to Montreal, I 
joined uh, some people who were part of um, MCC Montreal. Uh, and through that, I joined uh, the Gay Montreal Association, which was who used to run big dances at McGill until McGill outlawed those dances, but that's how we raised our money. What to kind offer. of music did you listen oh, to? Oh, I, I, uh, I loved to dance. So I would, uh, when I was in chat, I ran dances. We had Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Thursdays was lesbian night, just for women. Uh, and I used to, I, since I ran the dances, I could do this one lesbian. She could play the spoons. Oh, it was, I always wanted to play the spoons. It was so fun. It's so rare, but when someone is good at playing the spoons, it's really fun. Well, I always, when I think of uh, front of Ogilvy's and this guy that plays the spoons, or used to, uh, I always remind me of uh, these two lesbians who were just so talented when it comes to spoons. And uh, on Saturday, we had the the dances for the men, and there was Cyprian, and I forget his partner's name, could dance. They were so great at dancing, and it was, made me so jealous. It what was, sort of like style of dancing? Oh, any uh, formal stuff like okay. tangos, different sort of things Ooh. where you really had specific things and they were able to do, and they were like two people that were in the same pod and they were just blended together. It's just like you, the, no different, but they were just, so wonderful to watch. And when, just to go back to Toronto, uh, my friend Rob, who's now living in Ottawa, he uh, got him onto the board of, uh, of chat to help also run dances. And uh, he met Walter and uh, they went home and I was invited over for breakfast with Tessie. Tessie was an institution in, uh, I just got that sense, just like uh, the, when the way you said Tessie. I, it, if you go through Eaton's lingerie department with Tessie, you know you're out. <laughs> uh, and I did, and I was. Uh, it was uh, you had to, how to break into drag in the scene and all these different sort of things. And uh, so I when went to breakfast. Tessie walked in uh, shortly after I got there, and Walter was sort of he was just coming out and was didn't know what was going on. And Tessie walked in and walked right through to the uh, balcony, looked down and said, look at this man, come over here. <laughs> <laughs> Walter ended up running away. So I, I next met Walter because he, he phoned, uh, we had a chat uh, line, I used to run that, but George answered it that day and talked Walter. And Walter was, came to the dance that I was running and he, we had these big round tables so, around the edge. And Walter was the first person I saw sitting at the table, looking at the wall. And I said, oh, he needs help. <laughs> and uh, we've been together ever since. <laughs> well, you're someone who likes to help people. So well, it, it was, it, it was, be... uh, it was sort of that way. But he was the first blonde historian. And I, I, I was one of the things I got my degree in was history. And he, Walter was doing his PhD uh, at, uh, in Massey College and living in St. Jamestown, uh, which was a big thing in those days. I'd like... Um, McGill Ghetto was here uh, and all the development that uh, was prevented and so on and they prevented the St. Jamestown from going south into uh, all those beautiful things which are still there now, thank God. So, uh, Walter got a job at the University of Alberta from a one-year contract so he moved to Edmonton and I didn't want to let him go so I chased him and uh, in Saskatoon in 1975 was the first gay social service conference in the country. Oh. Uh, and so I went to see Walter 
And then I went to the conference and did my first uh, CTV uh, report from uh, Saskatoon. We got the interview and that, that was big. And that, then my grandmother died. I said, I will go home, on, go to the funeral on the weekend, but they decided to do the funeral while I was on the plane going back, so I missed my grandmother's funeral, which uh, bothered me. I wanted Walter to move with, in with me and started good, but I had difficulty at the beginning trying to convince it, and I, was, I became suicidal, and I phoned my brother, who was a psychiatrist, and I asked for help, and so he helped me. And then Walter said yes, and so we planned to uh, move to uh, Montreal because he got, uh, in those days, Walter was such a good uh, teacher, and uh, uh, Bliss was the name of the professor uh, at U of T, knew of a job in Montreal, so he, f he got, they asked him and he recommended Walter, so Walter got a job without even having to do anything. And so we agreed to move to Montreal came here and uh, 76 in February, found an apartment on Lincoln. Um, oh, I used to live on Lincoln. You know, this was a new building at the time with a pool on top and so on, which wasn't, Whoa. the building wasn't finished yet. But so we moved in. We got the thing in the apartment in the end of February. I moved all the stuff the end of March and I got sick and flew to Edmonton and Walter took me to the hospital. Uh, we saw Norman, is that you, uh, with uh, some major American actors, and uh, it became very, all these different things were sort of falling together. And then when I moved to, we got into Montreal, my, it was the Olympics, and so my brother and his family came to stay, and so we put them up. We didn't have anything, but we put them up, but we put them up, and I started doing art. I did these, and I got hired by different people around town to do wall art and so on in their oh, apartments. Cool. Oh, it was lovely stuff, and I, I, I was good at that. I liked that, but I, it was my first introduction to doing art and actually getting paid for it. Yeah, that's a, that's always a really novel experience <laughs> as, a, as an artist of, of many varieties. Yeah, it was, it, oh, I have a different talents. I don't even know I have. <laughs> um, the Gay Montreal Association, which was the big organization at that time, uh, and I had a, uh, offices on St. Femi Street and so on, and there was a drop-in which moved to uh, the Unitarian Church, which was burnt down. The Gay Montreal Association, I started Gay Info, which was a phone line, um, and we set up uh, uh, different programs, Mark Arms, which was the first AIDS organization, because by the time AIDS came around in the beginning of the 80s, uh, I had a reputation and several doctors came to me to organize a community response to AIDS, and so I did. I held people, because in those days you got diagnosed and you died uh, two weeks later. Oh so, my God, that fast. Oh yeah, because there was no, there was no, there was nothing. Yeah. People didn't know what it was, the gay plague and, uh, or the Haitian disease. They kept trying to blame it on, on different uh, groupings of people instead of accepting that everybody. Remember the patient zero the concept of was here from Montreal. So there's all kinds of stuff, but I organized, I helped people in my arms as they died and so on, so hundreds of people. I, uh, when I was setting up Mark Arms, I went to the gay health crisis in uh, New York City and Terence Higgins Trust in London to find out how the best to sort of respond. That's how I got to meet Sage when I was in New York. And But here in Montreal, there's still homophobia going on. So all, I had, set up uh, all these um, 
volunteers to do mentoring one-on-one -on -one with people to, to be, uh, so we trained all those people, but then, and I set up the first, in 1985, the first national conference on AIDS, $10,000 fund from the government, uh, and Nobby Gilmore, Dr. Gilmore was the big person in Canada at that point, so we were able to get that. I set up, the, I chaired the meeting that created the National AIDS Organization, which is now in Ottawa. So I, I, I'm, I, if you look at my background, I'm, I'm doing all kinds of stuff. I set up the first Parents of Gays when I was in Toronto, and I set up the first Parents of Gays here in Montreal. But because I wasn't uh, a parent, I'm now sort of forgotten about. I set up the f first trans TAMs, Travisia Montreal. I sat on the board of the Women's Information Referral Center as their token male. I was always doing all kinds of different things, but I, one rule I had is I had to have somebody from that particular community I was going to work with, or I wouldn't, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't do it without somebody else or without working with the community that I was trying to help. My other major problem in all my uh, community life was my, I can deal in French, but I'm not fluent. But Montreal, being so uh, bilingual, you would think, uh, I, and I picked up enough French to be able to go to meetings and, and do that sort of stuff. But uh, we set up <clears throat> the first gay coalition. Bob Bernie and I were the first president. Really? Yes. Uh, and How when, big was the organization? Uh, with all, the, all the organizations uh, were part of it, but they were mostly Anglophones because there wasn't any Francophones. Uh, there was one organization found in 71, but it died by the time of the trucks raid in uh, 77, just before uh, René Levesque introduced civil rights for gay people. But I, when we were organized in the streets, I but pushed around by the police, and so we, we, and this led to the creation of the ATGQ, which was the first big French organization, which took over uh, all the stuff, because people, Francophones didn't want to be part of uh, Raglam, which was called, uh, the Gay Coalition because it was mostly English groups and they wanted to be French, so that's why that died. There was a big, we have always this problem of English and French and you go to a big conference when you're saying from Quebec, people didn't want you to speak if you were from Quebec, if you were English. Uh, if you're French, it's fine, you were you're considered uh, a minority, but if you're an Anglophone from Quebec, you weren't considered, uh, you're considered part of and the majority from outside, because you weren't accepted as that you had, there were any Anglophones that could exist in Quebec, other than people who lived on top of the mountain looking down at the French uh, in St. Henry or something. Uh, there, was, there was this great difficulty, especially when uh, uh, René Levesque was first elected, but in René Levesque's government was the most gay positive. Of course, there were three gay cabinet ministers, that's probably why. <laughs> uh, but we got the first place in civil rights in 77, so... Uh, we, I was able, able to maneuver in the government systems because they were very positive, um, at least the, the PQ were at that point. And René Lévesque was uh, perhaps one of the best prime ministers, because uh, in Quebec and in Ontario, they're allowed to be called prime minister, and as well as the prime minister in Ottawa, because the, uh, when the uh, confederation happened, uh, Upper and Lower Canada were headed by prime ministers, and so they able still to use that word. And you, you'll see in French, uh, Dubay refers to Legault as prime minister because that's his title. Premier doesn't exist in the law, it's oh. prime minister. So uh, I, I, I kept founding organizations. 
Yeah, how many organizations oh, do you think uh, you've founded? I've dozens. I, I'm very good at finding organizations and getting the money and keeping it going and so on. That's why I, I've been successful at with Gay and Gray in some of the senses because of uh, my background is able to do things. <clears throat> and uh, Bruce, we are Fantastic. extraordinarily lucky to have him as, uh, as, as president. I don't think people realize how adaptable and intelligent and connected he is. And he's super friendly. I oh, love him. Yeah, he is. He's <laughs> such a sweet person. When I had cancer and I nearly died going through that process, and when I was getting better and got off my feeding tube, it took me about six months to get off the feeding tube. Six months? Oh, yeah. I couldn't. I was in the hospital for weeks, and Dr. Melanchuk, I call him my savior, because if it wasn't for him, I would have died. When I finished my radiation, I was so sick, uh, they wouldn't let me go home. They took me immediately into emergency and uh, into isolation and put me on so many. I had uh, blood transfusions, uh, potassium transfusions, magnesium. Tra I had all kinds of stuff. They were trying everything in their uncle to keep me alive. It, it was fine, thing, it turned out. But I, when I left, I was still on a feeding tube because I couldn't, I couldn't, well, I couldn't speak. I had to learn to speak. Uh, I had to learn to swallow. It's all those sorts of things which I, I, when I was diagnosed, I went to f see my nose doctor because I had uh, polyps removed from my nose once and uh, I get it checked. And he found something in my throat and called his colleague, Dr. Heyer, who's uh, head of the uh, head and neck uh, cancer clinic at the Jewish. Uh, he had one look and said, you're going to the hospital. I wasn't told I had cancer, I was just, taken and sort of so it was all a bit of a shock for me to try to deal with and I got it lucky in the sense that they found it early because I didn't have any symptoms considering how sick I was it turns out uh, I, I don't think I would have survived if it was uh, had a grown anymore considering all the shit that I went through to get out of it um, so I was I, I got out of that and got off the feeding tube in December and I said I needed because I was so isolated, I needed to have some place to go. And John Walker had mentioned that uh, there's this group for uh, gay Anglophone seniors and you might be interested. So I went and I joined that and uh, Miranda, uh, well, I, I worked with her mother uh, when I was at Filmary Social Services. Uh, so Mar uh, Ruth knows me for everything uh, and all my background. So uh, she would say, oh, well, good, we get you in there. So I, I, I was able to, begin to break my isolation and I said well I can volunteer and help do something else and uh, so they got me on their board and so on and uh, I, Walter said oh you got to be careful when I was going to all these different organizations I went to McGill and got took a year off to get my bachelor of social work went back to work and went and did my masters of social work while I was working full-time and doing all these different things, I started most of the welfare stuff I followed with, uh, like RAP, uh, Welfare Rights Against Poverty in different places. And I hired Ruth Pelche to help me, and she was the big welfare rights person from GAMAP way back in the days. And so things like the NDG Food Depot came out of the Citizens Advisory Council, which I created and so on. The thing about welfare is people on welfare spend all their money because they don't get a lot but uh, 
we learned that we need a, a safety net to keep society going. The safety net keeps business going. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we did away with welfare and unemployment insurance and just had the guaranteed annual income, one program um, that would meet all these different needs. And so people would be able to, like on welfare, you're, if you're medically on welfare, you get more. And when I was on welfare, it was $85 a month. Uh, so you couldn't do anything. And it was just too obvious. You give people money, they spend the money. They don't hide it because they need the money. They need it. <laughs> and business needs it because they, they spend the money. So one subsidizes the other. I remember once the head of the City of Montreal Welfare was the office was above the Amherst Market, which is now a Super C. Helen uh, would go, my, was my boss, went in to see the, the director general with a pair of scissors, cut off his tie and said, now that I have your attention. And that's how we worked. It, 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 wow, that is bold. Oh, we, we were bold. Like, we would, liter- would you literally cut off his tie? We just literally. Oh my God. I don't know if I would have the guts to do that. Oh no, we, we did. That's but so exciting. We developed, we developed a relationship with him. This person in uh, your office over there isn't functioning. So I could phone and he would deal with it. So we made, because we made a dramatic entrance and he remembered that. Well, you're not going to forget someone not cutting gonna, your tie off. We were able to, <laughs> we were able to maneuver, market that into something positive. We always were able to market it into something positive. Otherwise it wasn't worth it. So I was, had these things in Laval and the West Island and the social and all over the place. So I was doing all these things, doing all these gay different things, beginning with the, the AIDS stuff. So I was, I was so involved that I, I burnt out. Yeah, I can see. Like, I don't even know how you did all that I, you did. I, I don't know how. I, <laughs> I don't know how I got through working full-time and working uh, full-time to get my master's and working with all these different organizations. And when I... This, uh, the uh, CLSC in Betty Farm. I helped create the CLSC that I ended up working in Metro. I uh, helped create uh, with the, in the McGill Ghetto with the church that is now a nice condo units where the work started working with children. So I was able to get my hands in all kinds of different things, not necessarily with minorities because I was on the board of the Women's Center. So I, I was fighting with, because uh, it was the, the, it's now a condo, but it was a residence for nurses of uh, Jean d'Arc Hospital. And we, uh, the women's center was next door, and one of the things we were fighting for was to turn that uh, building into uh, a co-op for low-income people, which we did. So I was able to do not just gay stuff, I was doing all kinds of other stuff. So I, was, I learned how to use my time, and quickly, in effect, I was able to, uh, I was also president of the union, and organizing strikes, and so I, I was able to, I had so <laughs> many connections. so much. I'm, uh, I can't even, like, what, what span of time, is, like, what did your day look like at this point in time? I'm I, lucky to get sleep. <laughs> I was working for, I, I patterned, all different things, and I was Ville-Marie Social Service Center, I was their first AIDS worker. When Mark Arms broke off and CSAM got created because people left to form a non-denominational or non, uh, uh, because you, how can gay people give services to straight people? Uh, gay, the gay health crisis in uh, New York City was, was, it was considered an aberration rather than a, something to be emulated. <clears throat> so uh, that was my first example with how gay people can have an internalized homophobia and destroy their own uh, 
their own uh, pride in themselves to be able to think I, I, they're equal and they can give, if straight people can give service to gay people, gay people can give services to straight people. It shouldn't be, uh, the orientation has nothing to do with actual giving, granting mm -hmm. of service. Uh, I, I keep different things I did. I, so many things I did, I can't get them all together. <laughs> well, I mean, well, how old are you now? 74. So that's 74 years. I mean, you know, maybe like take shave off the first, you know, 15. But like, that's well, no, like a long time I, of doing work. I started, I organized the puppet thing for the community <laughs> before I was that. You're always a community organizer. It was a natural thing for me to do. And I was, when I was, because I also taught at McGill in the School of Social Work. It's another thing I did. Um, and I, I taught community organizing because uh, there was, you, you, social worker, there was always, people were thinking it was clinical. Well, there's also the community organizing aspect. And Jim Chorchina, who Project Genesis he created, uh, was the only person that uh, taught community organizing at uh, the School of Social Work. And so I did that as a lecturer for several years. And I founded the Field Teachers Association to make sure that the, the field teachers who were responsible for supervision had a voice and so I got I was representing the field teachers in various committees across McGill and so I, I, I used to and I did lots of public speaking I speak always spoke to the nurses at schools of nursing and faculty of education and so I was giving lectures all over the place uh, and I organized um, because of AIDS people dying and those giving services had nobody to talk to so I organized a uh, 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 a network where we would meet uh, and we could support each other. ACCM was created uh, when CSAM started to die. Uh, CSAM was set up after they broke off from Mark Arms, but the director general uh, ran off with $50,000 and destroyed the organization. But uh, they that's were a not. Yeah, it was a scandal. They were not giving an, uh, the services to Anglophone, so that's why ACCM was born. And I joined uh, that. Uh, it was one of the other things I founded. When I was teacher at, at McGill, I would send students out to organize around, uh, we want to have uh, uh, public housing in this area. So we would organize the community to force that to happen. So I was teaching, uh, depending on what was in the news at uh, that time, I would get the students to do something that would benefit the community. I would choose something different every year depending on uh, what was the big topic at the time. I was able to uh, pick up something uh, like the university settlement and use their newspaper to broadcast stuff that would benefit the community. And so as I was able, to, uh, Terry, who was head of the university settlement, became uh, uh, head of the CLSE Benny Farm, as was uh, now called, but it was in CLSE NDG when we founded it. So there's, there's these, these different things that, that still manifest themselves. I'm on, I'm on the uh, access committee for English services for the island of Montreal, um, and these ten institutions, five CISs and then the MUHC and the Schumann and so on, all have to justify to us. Um, how they're giving services in English. So, and all these people who I worked with and so on are in populated in different, uh, these different committees in Laval or on the South Shore and so on. So these things tend to overlap. And uh, uh, I see people who I've worked with in one context or now in another context or somebody at uh, Montreal uh, West, uh, where the NDG Senior Citizens Council is based, Karen, her mother was 
teaching at uh, the School of Social Work and used to go north to teach with natives every summer. Um, so there was all kinds of different things. Um, Dan Rice, who I uh, got in, involved and made him uh, director of education for ACCM, was the first AIDS person elected by the Assembly of First Nations to represent AIDS people. He used to travel up uh, different sides on the Bay of Fundy and Hudson's Bay and so on, meeting with the natives before he died. So I was able to have more influence when I look at it than, uh, than uh, or where other people see it, and I don't see it as much as other people do, but I was able to have far-reaching influence in different communities by finding the right people to, uh, I was, I'm very good at uh, eyeing somebody and saying, this person I can work with and they can make a benefit and so on. I wasn't interested in uh, making glory for somebody or myself and so on, but I was interested in making sure the population had benefits. And I always wanted to make sure, no matter what organization I was doing, that the people we we were supposed to be helping were the ones that we were actually helping. Forget the politics, I wasn't interested in so much, but I know how to play politics. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I was you able, have to, well, you have to know how. When I was... Um, when you're running that many organizations and getting them off the ground, you need to know a little bit of politics. Well, I was able to do, I able to change law 101. I changed law 101, René Levesque's law to make French the official language in Quebec. I we became, uh, Law 57, which amended the Human Rights Act. Tom Mulcair, who was at Alliance Quebec, who became leader of the NDP, worked with me. Jacques, uh, who was the president of the CSN at that time. You get the CSN and Alliance Quebec working together, which was revolutionary at the time. And because we got those people working together, they saw that the, the community, both English and French, were united, and this benefited both English and French, and so they changed the law to allow a little more protections. I set up the Anglophone table in the CSN for, ang for English-speaking unions that were in the CSN because they weren't communicating or their needs weren't, were not being met because they were in a sea of French and nobody understood English. So uh, it was always, a always bucking the system, uh, and, but in a benefit for somebody. Uh, and, and it always worked. Uh, I remember Dr. Shadowver, because I was complaining once, that I, I'm not sure of having any effect, and he sort of he got annoyed with me. He said, "You've had more effect than than, than anybody, but I, I know." And I, I, I just, nah. Because in, when 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 I was coming out, it's a prison term, and then you became legal. But there wasn't wasn't uh, your self worth. You weren't considered. Um, equal, you weren't considered worthy, and all, all these stuff. Well, the communities were still slow to change, right? Well, like, exactly. Even when I was growing up, I, I, I grew up in a small town in Ontario, a beautiful place to grow up, but also really not okay if you were not straight. And oh, yeah. I, like, you know, the queer was a, a horrible thing to call someone. Gay was also used as a, as a slur. Like it was, and you know, we were definitely like beat up. It was, it was a really scary place. And that's in my lifetime. When I was coming out, I wrote a letter to my parents coming out saying I was gay and so on. And if they didn't want to talk to me, I understood that. So I expected them to break off. And my nephew, my nephew has done, set up all the gay stuff in Windsor, the gay pride, and high school teacher. He did his, uh, he was, did his master's at the University of Hawaii. He met uh, Obama's sister and they became great friends. And he was doing his PhD at the U of T and said, this isn't worth it. And so he went into teaching. Uh, 
started doing several things. My brother, my brother, when I came back, did uh, he was the first speaker at the first national conference for the parents of gays set up in Toronto. Uh, and we did a radio program when I went back with him to Windsor. Uh, and uh, he, because he was a psychiatrist, he wasn't quite accepting that you could be born this way, but he accepted that you could be influenced and it was okay to be gay. And when I joined the Gay Montreal Association, we, in French, we would use gay with a E in brackets for representing the gay women. The women were fighting over, should we call gay women or should we call lesbians? I'd, I, and I just sort of, you guys decide this. And you know, I don't, never did decide this. No, and I think it's evolved quite a bit as well. Oh, yes. So that now, nowadays, there's plenty of uh, women who don't want to use the term lesbian. Yeah, um, it's become, it's going back that way because yeah. of, there was a lot of women didn't want that. And, and then women, lesbians did want that. When we set up the, the, uh, uh, Mark Arms and so on. We we had lesbian in the, the in the title because women were going in that direction. It, it, it moves. Yet when my nephew was queer, and publicly, and I said, how you, I, I was quite askance that somebody could use the word queer, but it, it was re reframing that into something Taking positive. It back. One of the things I created was Cote Cote, a couples group. Uh, everything was set up for singles, bars and so on. There was nothing for couples. So I set up this this uh, gay couples group and we used to meet for dinners and different things. I keep forgetting that I've created different things. <laughs> yeah, you're going to just keep remembering more and more. <laughs> there were so many things that needed to be doing and I said, oh, I can do all these things. Uh, <laughs> I can relate very hard. <laughs> then I, would, I came to the point where I said, these things have to exist on their own or die because I can't keep doing everything mm -hmm. and so some of them died it annoyed me I set up a Alpha Kira which was a, a gay fraternity a social fraternity because uh, I, I was president of uh, Phi Kappa Pi Canada's only national uh, fraternity uh, back in the, for a decade from 74 to 84 um, and I did, did a lot of national traveling all over because we had from Halifax to Vancouver, we had chapters. I was known uh, when I did the thing in 75 from Saskatoon, the fraternity world just, just was went bananas uh, because the Greek stuff was uh, always being, because we're, we have Greek letter stuff, we were always being of being gay and we're not. I was living a double life then because I was president of the University of Toronto chapter and I was coming out I was working with uh, the body politic was just out on the streets and <clears throat> I was finding uh, I was joining chat and on their board so I was doing something over here and something over there they couldn't know what I was I uh, I couldn't be public with them at that time I didn't feel public with them but I wanted to be public with everything but I felt that they wouldn't understand and I would do things like it when I as national president, I would come to Toronto or Montreal, and I took the Montreal chapter to the Playboy Club here in Montreal, which existed at that time. And and I took my, I remember, I took my brother and sister to the Detroit Playboy Club. Wow, I used to take the lamps off the table and mugs and different. I was loading up and so on. I get 
to get my sister-in-law open your purse. So I would put things in there. So I have all these different things from the Playboy clubs, which don't exist anymore. But I, I, so I have lots of different souvenirs from different things that I, <laughs> I would use different ways to maneuver in the system, acceptable ways, but they didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> it, was, it was fun sometimes. And now when some of these people uh, they know who I am and it's not a problem anymore and uh, I've been invited back to the fraternity to speak on uh, gay issues and so on so they're very open about that kind of stuff but it was uh, these people the president of the Montreal chapter and, and who I still write to on Facebook and so on is uh, now I understand <laughs> different things it was uh, it, it's been a growth process as society has evolved and I've become more comfortable different things and because of my activism and feeling that I have to be out there because other people can't be I have to lead the way my my uh, mantra at the time was one person can make a difference you don't have to organize the world you can just do one thing but there's too many one things because <laughs> yeah it sounded like you had about 635 uh, you know things still do but much less now <laughs> only because my the cancer forced me to uh, uh, stop Walter was very afraid that I was dying but he was happy in one sense because he got to uh, I got to take all that away and I, he got to take care of me and we got much closer because uh, I needed him and he, and uh, I realized that I was doing so many things and I was taking him for granted. I was comfortable in the relationship and because I was comfortable, I didn't have to worry about that. And I could do all these other things. Thank God he, would, he allowed me to do all these other things. He sounds like a very supportive partner. Oh, he is a very supportive partner, but he's a very, uh, isolated partner. That's why this gangrene is good for him. All his friends, other than Gil, have all died. So he didn't, unless he got people from me, he has nobody in his life. And he's able to exist uh, quietly because he's, he likes to read and he likes to research. And, and I like to do funny things. One of my papers was on the uh, uh, Presbyterians. I, I did a thing on 1875 when the Church of Scotland and the Presbyterians merged together. And then in 1925, the United Church was, was created. Well, I did another thing, uh, a paper on, on that. So I was able to do all these, uh, these pieces of research, primary research, and it was fun. I liked doing those sorts of things. And it was, ha it was fun to have some time to do that. Um, and, but Walter does that all the time especially when he was teaching and he, his PhD is in urban studies and Canadian history. Oh, so you connected a lot on history, I bet. Oh, yeah, well, that's, what, that's where our first connection was because of history. And he, he was, he taught a course with Phyllis Lambert. Uh, and of course, I knew Phyllis because I, I saw a board. Who's Phyllis Lambert? Is that one of our the, members? The, she no. created the architecture museum. Oh, oh, wow. And she's a, she's a Seagram. Uh, she's a big wig in architecture and so on. And she was, I, when I was on the board of the Women's Center, one of the things that I had to do was help create money. So I went to see her and I left with $10,000 for the Women's Center. So I wow. Was, oh, I was able, I'm good at Productive raising, day. I was, I was always <laughs> good at productive days. And, 
It's funny because at the Shaughnessy Village House, I used to go and have sex in there because it was a great meeting place for uh, for the... Because uh, a lot of gay people would go to the mountain or different places to meet outside. Um, and this village, the Shaughnessy Village House was run down. That's why she took it over and made it into a museum. But it, it has a whole history in there. I was able to make... I had resources all over the island, and if not the province, um, uh, for a variety of different uh, <clears throat> needs. So people always used to come to me, I need somebody in the Trinidadian community. Oh, okay, so I go through my... When I retired, my index was fought over. Really? Oh, yeah, because uh, I had so many. Did you auction it off? Well, I, I, I chose who to give it to, that's for <laughs> mm, sure. Yeah, you'd want to be very particular. Oh, no, because I, 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 those things were a, a product of a life's experience. Um, and uh, I want to make sure they went to somebody who could do and they did. But uh, I, it, was, it, was, it was always easy to find, or if you couldn't find it, I knew people in the community, I could create a response, whether it was welfare or women or uh, children or whatever the needs were. I, mm. I knew how to get at things and how to find people, or... Uh, I was able to, I, you run this part of the United Church, I need somebody over there, find me somebody. And it's always, because I, it was, I knew and they knew me, I was able to market. And that was helpful to the different communities I was working with. And people still call me for that. And I said, well, I don't know anybody anymore. Uh, when I don't want to know, and <coughs> I did so much, I would say, I just don't want to. When I joined Gay and Grey, I wanted something that would help me to, uh, with my isolation break out of that, but also to help Walter and to help us, Walter and me. Walter likes croquet. Walter was the University of Toronto varsity champion in croquet. What? And he, on the pages of the varsity uh, one year when he won that, it's a, his picture and so on, so he qualified for a, <laughs> uh, a university letter because of croquet. That's uh, amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> so the church allowed croquet because it wasn't a controversial game and this is something you can do on Sundays. And so every park had a croquet pitch, concrete, physical croquet pitch and so on. Some of them are still there, but they started tearing them down and turning them into dog runs. And so I took different mayors to task. Mayor Bork, I took to task and got one croquet pitch saved. John Doré, I took to task and got another croquet. So I was able, <laughs> I was able to do, I knew what to do, so I was able to do something and got this stuff so that we play in Trent Home Park. They just redid the pitch, put in, redid the, the uh, uh, shuffleboard, redid the uh, shoe, uh, horseshoe thing, and put all equipment out there so everybody could play. It was fun. I, when I was, or, I organized uh, <clears throat> a gay croquet group, okay croquet, many different things. So when I uh, was joining uh, Gay and Gray, I, I liked the idea that it was just an, it wasn't a service organization, because that's all I was doing was service. I just wanted something where I could get some fun out of it and just meet people and relax. Thank you, David, so You're much welcome. for being on the podcast. I'm happy. I'm, I'm really happy that we did this. I'm happy to be the first podcast, too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it fits in with the theme. <laughs> One person can do 
one thing. It may reverberate and grow, but you start with one thing. Take something, chew it, don't choke. Just take something you can chew and do it. Uh, everybody can do something, uh, and you never know something small is a good place to begin.